Are you looking for a way to give back this Christmas? The Disaster Services Corporation, a sister company of the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, can use your help. Their program, House in a Box, provides new furnishings to disaster survivors and families who have fallen into situational poverty. Your gift provides beds, linens, dishes, pots and pans, dressers, silverware, bathroom setup, dinette, and a couch. Give the gift of a fresh start to a disaster survivor family this Christmas season by donating at svdpdisaster.org. The first letters of St. Vincent de Paul, svdpdisaster.org. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media, where each week we take you behind the headlines of the biggest stories out of the Vatican. My usual co-host, Gerard O'Connell, is out this week, so we'll be joined by one of our producers and an editor here at American Media, Father Ricardo da Silva. First up on the show, in addition to celebrating his 86th birthday this weekend, Pope Francis revealed in an interview that he had already signed his letter of resignation. We have shocking new revelations this morning about Pope Francis's health. In a new interview, he reveals that he has already written a resignation letter in case medical issues leave him unable to perform his duties. Next, a letter from the Pope's representative to the United States revealed that an outspoken anti-abortion priest, Father Frank Pavone, had been removed from the priesthood for persistently disobeying his bishop. A well-known priest who also served as the national co-chair of Pro-Life Voices for Trump has been kicked out of the priesthood by Pope Francis. And last up, the timeline of abuse allegations and investigations into Father Marco Rupnik is finally coming together. Ricardo and I will walk you through what you need to know. In October, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith ruled that the Statue of Limitations for the allegations had passed, but the Society of Jesus decided to maintain precautionary measures taken against Father Rupnik during the investigation. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Ricardo. Good morning from New York, Colleen. Our listeners are going to have to get used to hearing that because you are going to be taking over for me as host of Inside the Vatican uh, while I'm out on maternity leave, which (laughs) beginning date TBD. (laughs) I have big shoes to fill while you're trying to fill small shoes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So Jerry is out this week. He wasn't feeling well. But Ricardo, you and I are going to be giving a rundown of some news updates out of the Vatican. And then we're going to dig into this case of Marco Rupnik in the second half of the show. He is the priest artist who we've been talking about for the last couple weeks. But just in the last few days, some more information has come out that fills in some of the gaps. And so we want to walk our listeners through what we know and the questions that still remain. It's been quite a week. It has. And you've been doing really good reporting on this. And so I'm, I'm glad to be able to feature a conversation with you about it. All right. Let's start with some good news, though. Uh, Pope Francis celebrated his 86th birthday this weekend, and he got a good uh, present the day afterwards with Argentina winning the World Cup. So he celebrated his birthday with a bunch of kids in the Vatican. Some circus performers came. They're always having circus performers at the Vatican for some reason. (laughs) We have not heard from the Pope about the World Cup, though. No, we haven't. But we also know that uh, he wasn't watching, probably, because That's right. he did promise the Virgin Mary in 1990 that he would give up television. Uh, mm-hmm. But we know that he usually gets his soccer scores 
from the Swiss guards and whatever he reads in the papers. <laughs> I did text Jerry halfway through the game and I told him, if you have any contacts in the Swiss guards, tell them to run in and ask the Pope to start praying right now. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, he is a fan of the San Lorenzo soccer team from back in Buenos Aires. And I believe he even subscribes to a local newspaper from there to follow the game updates. Mm. But in in urgent situations, a Swiss guard might come in and and tell him (laughs) what's going on. I wonder if he'll invite Messi to the Vatican. Oh, good question. I mean, we know that he met with Maradona several times and Messi will... Probably have some time on his hands now, now that we're in the off season after he's done with all of the uh, celebrations. So I think I think it wouldn't be out of the question. I also wonder if we'll get a message of congratulations to the team. Yeah, although usually those come pretty quickly after, don't they? It's true. And we haven't had anything yet. So we'll see. Maybe he sent something privately. That's always a possibility as well. Yeah, we'll get a report of a telephone call to Messi. Another piece of news, we have spoken often in the last year or so, especially about the possibility of Pope Francis resigning. There were all those rumors back in the early summer that we were still kind of considering late in the summer about the Pope possibly resigning. And in a new interview that came out this weekend with the Spanish daily newspaper ABC, Pope Francis revealed that he had actually already signed his resignation letter. Yes, so ABC reports, quoting the Pope in in that interview, I have already signed my resignation. And he says that he gave his resignation to Cardinal Tarsicio Bertoni, who was the Secretary of State. So he signed that resignation when he took office. And he told him, in case of a health impediment or whatever, here's my resignation. You have it. But he doesn't know who Cardinal Bertoni gave that to, hopefully the new Secretary of State. Um, <laughs> so we're I, not quite sure what happened to that uh, letter of resignation. No, I'm I'm sure it's somewhere safeguarded. <laughs> I hope so. Um, it's interesting, though, the, the two ABC interviewers asked the Pope if he wanted this on the record. And he was like, that's why I'm telling you. And he drew some uh, historical parallels. He said that Paul VI had left his resignation in writing just in case. Pius XII had probably done so, he said. I think it's interesting because there has been so much conversation about, you know, what the protocols are for if a pope ever were to become unable to govern. Father Tom Reese, who writes for Religion News Service, former editor of America, has spoken a number of times on this, including on this show, about how There is no set protocol for if a pope were to become unable to govern. He has written uh, with the very eye-catching headline, who pulls the plug on the pope? And Pope Francis is making it very clear. The person who pulls the plug is the Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. He knows what the pope wants uh, Mm -hmm. in the event that the pope should be incapacitated in any way. And so... That's now clear. Another interesting comment in this interview that stood out to me, obviously, because this is one of my favorite subjects to cover, is that Pope Francis said that he has a woman in mind to head a dicastery that will have a vacancy in two years. So right now we have lay men running dicasteries, but we don't have any women in the top positions. No, we have women at number two. Yes. So I I went through the list of dicasteries in the new Korea constitution and tried to find out when all the last appointments were made, because usually people, the heads will be appointed to five-year terms in most offices. And then at, at that time, so in two years, one of those will have a vacancy that he says a woman could fill. The only one that I found that'll have a vacancy in two years is the Interreligious Dialogue Office. So maybe we will see a, a woman 
who is an expert in interreligious dialogue, appointed to that. That is interesting because I don't think we've heard of too many women in the interreligious dialogue office. Um, no, exactly. So that would be an interesting appointment, certainly. A final piece of news that came out this weekend that really made waves in the U.S. church was that a letter from Archbishop Christophe Pierre, who is the Pope's nuncio or papal ambassador to the United States, a letter from him to the U.S. bishops said that Father Frank Pavone had been laicized. Now, Frank Pavone, for those who are not familiar, is a very outspoken priest, well, up to now a priest. He headed the organization Priests for Life, which is an anti-abortion group that's not officially affiliated with the church. And he's extremely outspoken and, and sometimes brash on social media. And he was laicized on November 9th, according to the Nuncio letter, because of, quote, blasphemous communications on social media and, quote, persistent disobedience to his bishop. The statement said that Pavone was given ample opportunity to defend himself as well as to submit to his bishop. And it was determined that Father Pavone had no reasonable justifications for his actions. And the letter from Archbishop Christoph Peer also said that there's no recourse to make an appeal to the Vatican to overturn this laicization. Now, Father Pavone told Catholic News Agency when this news came out that CNA's uh, inquiry to him about this was the first he was hearing about it. So that does contradict what the Vatican's letter says. But Ricardo, maybe you can give us some background on what Father Pavone did that may have prompted such an action. Sure. We know that Mr. Pavone, as he is now referred to, was in conflict with the Bishop of Amarillo, especially over concerns around pro-life and some of his more political activism. And one of the things that he did do is he placed an aborted fetus on an altar. Now, that altar was not consecrated, but he there was a public demonstration of placing an aborted fetus on an altar. And so he was asked not to do that, and he is being criticized for that. He is also being criticized for comments that he has made on social media. The report, we must be clear, simply says blasphemous communications on social media and persistent disobedience of his bishop. It doesn't give reasons or specific examples, but we do know that he has referred somewhat blasphemously uh, to the president of the United States, President Biden, um, on social media. Right. He also has been in conflict with his bishop for a number of years. Father Pavone had previously appealed some restrictions that were placed on him by his bishop back in Amarillo, Texas. And that was back in 2011, I believe. But yeah, he was able to successfully appeal those. Then he moved to Colorado. It's not clear whether he was ever officially made a, a priest of that diocese in Colorado that he moved to. And it seems he was never really officially moved to that diocese, although he argues in interviews that the Congregation for Clergy had allowed for that change. Mm -hmm. So he finds it surprising that he has been stripped of his priesthood mm -hmm. because he says that a more natural resolution to this would have been to approve his move to another diocese, which suggests, mm -hmm. therefore, that he was not moved um, officially. Got it. Now, we should make it clear, um, right after this, this news came out, there were some people who were reacting to this saying, oh, he's being punished for being too pro-life. That is not what this is about, according to Archbishop Pierre's letter. This is about his obedience to his bishop. And Ricardo, you are a Jesuit priest. I should have established that at the beginning, but you are a Jesuit priest in addition to being a journalist at America. I wonder if you could 
give us some insight on how important this vow or promise of obedience to your bishop is for priests. Like, why is this such a big deal? So, Mr. Pavone didn't take a vow of obedience to God. He made a promise of obedience to his bishop. The church operates in a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And so, in this sense, he is responsible to his bishop and to his bishop's orders. He has openly defied his bishop's orders. He refers in interviews to his priesthood as a profession. Mm -hmm. If we think about any profession where you disobey the person to whom you are responsible, you disobey your boss, Mm -hmm. you are fired. (laughs) You are removed from that role. Mm -hmm. I think there's some similarity here that we can draw. Well, and now he's saying that he's going to refuse to comply with this order. He actually, in in kind of his classic... um, brash or extreme fashion he he compared himself to an aborted fetus in this situation he said that he had been disposed of canceled he accuses the church of cancel culture and referring again to the priesthood as a profession he says in every profession including the priesthood if you defend the unborn you'll be treated like them he says they just don't like the work i'm doing for these babies it remains to be seen what position if any mr pavone continues to hold in the organization Priests for Life. Uh, The Vatican's statement, they had kind of an addendum to Archbishop Pierre's letter uh, because this is such a high-profile case. But that said that, you know, since Priests for Life is not a Catholic organization, it'll be up to them to decide what role, if any, Mr. Pavone continues to hold as a layperson. Ricardo, I want to raise one more thing here. You and I are about to spend the whole second part of the show talking about the case of Father Marco Rupnik, who is uh, this famous Jesuit artist, has done some very high-profile work for the Vatican, and now all of these uh, allegations, these stories about sexual abuse, even his excommunication have come up. Many of our readers and our listeners will be wondering what the difference is between Rupnik, who seems to have done something much worse than Father Pavone in you know, disobeying his bishop versus Rupnik abusing people, there seems to be a tension there between, you know, Rupnik not being removed from the priesthood and Pavone being removed. So when we come back, we'll talk about what we know now about the Rupnik case, including this thing that came out last week about him being excommunicated. And we'll also raise what big questions still remain about that case. Stay with us. For the second part of our show today, we want to give you a timeline on the case of the Jesuit priest and artist Marco Rupnik. Uh, More information has come out in recent days that has helped fill some of the gaps in this story, but we want to note that this really is a moving target. A lot of different statements are coming out. We're working to uh, verify a lot of that information as it comes out, like Jerry and I spoke about last week. But we want to recap for you what we know about this case and what the timeline looks like, and then what big questions remain. Ricardo, you've been doing a ton of reporting on this all weekend, working on putting together a timeline and verifying facts, reaching out to sources. Let's walk through this together. Maybe let's start in the 1980s and 90s with this Loyola community in Slovenia. Sure. Colleen, I I think I just want to qualify that and say, you know, I've 
I have done some reporting. I've done a lot more reading. Uh, there is so much information out there from blog sources, from credible news sources. And what we've really been trying to do at America is to compile that. Mm -hmm. So we do know that this story begins um, somewhere around the 1980s and 1990s. In the 1980s, Father Rupnik serves in a pastoral capacity to a community known as the Loyola community. Some sources say he was a, a kind of co-founder of this community. It's difficult to know exactly what his role is there, and I think that's something that we still need to really establish. Mm -hmm. But basically, the Loyola community is a religious institute in the Archdiocese of Ljubljana in Slovenia, and it's established somewhere in the 1980s. And in about 1991, Father Rupnik is asked to leave this community because of some tensions. At that time, it wasn't clear what those tensions were. My understanding is that this community is, it's all women. Uh, it was fairly small, but then it, it grew very rapidly in the decades after this. Um, and as a religious institute, it's not totally clear to me on whether these women were taking religious vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, if, if we could think of them as, as nuns or sisters, uh, or if they were not in religious life, but were living in a community that was kind of informed by those values. Because we know that there are religious institutes that are like that too. I think it's a vowed religious community. I'm not sure. Okay. Does that mean we can call them sisters? We can certainly call them sisters. I okay. think what we do know is that it is um, a community of diocesan right. Now, let's clarify what that means. It basically means that it's not a community that is governed by Rome. It is a community that's governed by the archbishop of mm -hmm. that place. Um, and so its remit is very local. Okay. So we know that Father Ibnik leaves the community following some tensions there. Uh, and at that point, he moves to Rome. This is 1991. And he is appointed the director of this new spiritual arts division at Centro Aleti, which is part of the Pontifical Oriental Institute. He later becomes its director. But this is where he continues to live, at the Centro Aleti. It's where he continues to make his art. Until about 2021, when he leaves the Centro Aleti, we're told that he leaves um, because of internal organizational changes mm -hmm. um, and also because he has many commissions outstanding for art across the world that he needs to focus on. And so he can't be the director anymore. Okay. So it sounds like he is leaving because of tensions with this community and because he's behind on his art. Where do the abuse allegations come in? Well, let's, let's clarify. So he, he leaves the com community Loyola because of tensions there. Yeah. Centro Aleti, which is this new center in Rome, mm -hmm. um, he leaves there, we are told, simply because of these changes in the organization and his, uh, and his artwork. So mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's almost 30 years between these two places. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, though, and this is where it's led some to speculate, because he leaves Centraletti just as the then CDF is conducting what we now know is the second investigation into him concerning mm -hmm. what the society says are allegations of abuse of some of the Loyola community members. Okay, so we have the Loyola community in the 90s. There has been one investigation already, and this is where what you were saying about it being under the diocesan bishop is important because it was a local investigation in Slovenia. Some of the members of that community 
after Rupnik left, left with him. They went to the Centraletti. So he continues to have like this, this following uh, that literally follows him to Rome. And then there is this second investigation in 2021, around when he leaves the Centro Aletti. And this is also concerning allegations of abuse from some of the Loyola community members. So we're talking like 30-year-old allegations at this point. Correct. And these allegations come about, we now know, because of what we call a canonical visitation. So there was a bishop from Rome, Bishop Daniele Libanori, a Jesuit, who was asked to investigate uh, tensions in this community. And it is because of these tensions allegedly in this community, uh, between the members of the community, not involving necessarily Father Rupnik, that this investigation takes place. And during this investigation, these women come forward, they tell their stories to the investigator, to the what we call the canonical visitator, Bishop Libanori, and he encourages them to lodge complaints against Father Rupnik with the society and with the Vatican about the abuses committed. And so that's what they do. One thing we do need to say about the allegations of abuse in the Loyola community is that after Bishop Daniel Libanori went to Slovenia to do that investigation, the CDF decided that it was not able to continue processing that case because it had reached what is known in, can in canon law as the prescribed time, which we speak about today as the statute of limitations. It had exceeded the 20-year period that is allowed for an adult who alleges abuse to report that abuse by a priest. Mm -hmm. Right. And what we don't know, which is a question that we raised previously on the show, is uh, who made the decision to abide by that statute of limitations? Because as we know from many other abuse cases, that statute of limitations, that 20-year limit, is often waived in abuse cases. And so the question is here, who decided that this very prominent priest who has these high-up Vatican connections, who decided that these allegations would be able to be basically dismissed because of the statute of limitations in this case? And it must be said that the head of the CDF the person investigating mm -hmm. are all Jesuits. And so there are questions there. There are questions around whether there was preferential treatment given to a Jesuit, and we simply don't know. Got it. Okay. So this is going to be the part that for some of our listeners, if if you uh, don't want to hear about abuse allegations in detail, we would recommend that you skip ahead by a few minutes. Um, but Ricardo, let's recap. What, what are the allegations here by these women? So, Colleen, to be respectful um, to the woman who is referred to as Anna, this is not her real name, but this is how Il Sismografo, which is one of these blogs in Italy, uh, tells the story. And here's what she says. She says, the first time he kissed me on the mouth, telling me that this was how he kissed the altar where he celebrated the Eucharist, because with me he could experience sex as an expression of God's love. And that's the beginning of that account. Her story goes on and on detailing how uh, basically he 
pressured her into sex using a lot of spiritual language, uh, how he was doing this to other women as well. And even, you know, when she refused his advances at different points, he would kind of shame her in front of others. And she says uh, at one point, she says, Father Marco at first slowly and gently infiltrated my psychological and spiritual world mm -hmm. by appealing to my uncertainties and frailties while using my relationship with God to push me to have sexual experiences with him. Yeah. So he manipulates a very privileged space, mm -hmm. which as a priest I know is an incredibly confidential, but also a very vulnerable space where people share the great depths of their being. And he uses that moment, uh, it appears, to do what we now refer to as grooming and then make sexual advances on her. Yeah. And it's not clear if this is the same woman who sent the letter to left.it, which is another one of the blogs, but there was a copy of a letter published uh, to Pope Francis alleging similar things. And the timeline seems to be the same between these two. And what we know as a result of that is that in June uh, 2021, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith contacts the Jesuits in Rome, the general curia of the Jesuits, about these allegations. We then know that a preliminary investigation is set up a month later. It's led by people external to the Society of Jesus, and that restrictions are imposed by Father Ferskiren, who effectively is Father Rupnik's superior in Rome. Okay. Those restrictions are to avoid private in-depth spiritual contacts with persons, forbidden to confess to women, and to give spiritual direction to women specifically in the context of Centro Aleti, which is part of, I think, the question we need to ask now, because up until now, we had only heard of allegations at the Loyola community in Slovenia. We had not heard of allegations at the Centro Aleti. Okay, and then there's this whole excommunication thing. In a note in our episode last week, you added this, Ricardo, because it was really late-breaking news. But basically, up until now, we were discussing this on Inside the Vatican as something that possibly was just an abuse of the power differential here, but it was between consenting adults, and so it may not incur as strict of a punishment as something like abusing a minor, even though this could be considered a vulnerable adult. The place where this gets really real for the church canonically is that Father Rupnik apparently absolves one of the women who he had this kind of relationship with in confession. And that is a big crime under church law to absolve someone who was, quote, an accomplice in in a priest's sin, and that incurs automatic excommunication. So what do we know about when the Vatican finds out about Ripnik automatically excommunicating himself, and, and what happens around that? We now know that in October 2018, the society receives allegations of absolution of an accomplice by Father Ripnik, and the society immediately sets up a preliminary investigation. Okay. We then know that by May the following year, the allegations are deemed credible, and so the society reports it to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and imposes those restrictions that we have just spoken about. We know that in July, 
the CDF asks the society to set up what's called an a penal administrative process. So okay. that sounds like a big thing, but basically it's an extrajudicial process. It's a, it's a process that is not a legal proceeding, but is an investigation, is a formal investigation by the society into what happened. Okay. That formal investigation concludes in January 2020 and concludes that indeed there was this absolution of an accomplice. It is then only in May that the CDF concludes that indeed this happened. And so because of that very action, Father Rupnik is automatically excommunicated, mm-hmm. right? What we call um, excommunication latte sententia, automatic yeah. excommunication. But this excommunication is lifted because once you admit to the crime, the canonical mm-hmm. crime, and you repent of that sin or repent of that crime, that excommunication can be lifted. So back to 2015, when he absolved this accomplice, all the way up until 2021, mm-hmm. is that right? When they when they lift the excommunication, he is technically excommunicated, but he's still working as a priest. Are there supposed to be penalties for that? You're absolutely right. As a priest, he should know that he is excommunicated by that act. Yeah. But it was only known to the Vatican all those years later, six years later almost. Yeah, this raises a question about the restrictions themselves too, because even during the period when these restrictions are in place, Father Rupnik continues to do really high-profile work. Uh, There comes a point when he preaches on the Gospels in a YouTube video, and some of the victims identify that as a breach of what they understood to be his restrictions. He also stands in for Father Raniero Cantalamesa, who is the papal preacher at one of the Lenten retreats and preaches then. Right, which is a huge deal. I mean, that's like the highest honor that a preacher in the Vatican can have is to lead the Lenten retreat for the Roman Curia. So there is this question that remains about, did he behave any differently under these restrictions, because that that gives us a clue of both what they were and how stringently they were imposed. It certainly appears from what we've been able to, you know, patch together from all the information that there was no perfect obedience here. Right. So what we don't understand is this. According to the society, restrictions are imposed twice by Father Fiskian, who is the what we call the delegate for Roman houses which is Father Rupnik's superior in Rome. Mm-hmm. So they are imposed in June 2019 and again in July 21. Okay, why two rounds? Well, and, and this is what we don't have clarity on. According to what Father Friskian told National Catholic Register, they report that Father Friskian says this about the second round of restrictions. The restrictions are now increased to include men although they confirm that no men um, have reported cases of abuse, at least not to our knowledge, but that those restrictions are now also applied in the field of public activity to avoid causing scandal to the victims. And that is allegedly a direct quote by Father Friskeden. Okay. And that the practice of Father Rupnik's art may continue, and he can still celebrate Mass and preach homilies, but only in a community context, so in a private environment. So he can't celebrate public masses. What do you think are the important questions that remain in trying to understand this case and and looking ahead to what's next? So I think one of those questions we've been talking about over and over, which is these restrictions. What do these restrictions Mm -hmm. amount to? 
How did mm-hmm. they change? Were they ever lifted? We don't know. Were the second restrictions simply a renewal of those first restrictions or were they a reimposition um, of mm-hmm. restrictions, right? So that's not clear to us. What is also not clear to us is what Father Rupnik's role is in the Loyola community at mm-hmm. Centro Aleti. What, you know, what were the reasons behind his resignation from the center? Mm-hmm. In 2021. We have some women who've come forward, but we don't know if we're talking about the same person who has told the story to multiple blogs or if these are different women. We mm-hmm. certainly know that different women um, have been involved. And we have confirmation from Bishop Daniele Libanori to the Associated Press that these allegations have basis, have founding. Mm-hmm. So we certainly know that a lot more needs to be said around this. Yeah. Ricardo, you and I have slogged through a lot of information in in this podcast. Um, For anyone who is listening and maybe feels lost or feels conflicted about, you know, what all of this means, what would you say is is the big takeaway from this story for like ordinary mass-going Catholics? I think the important thing to know here is that we are coming to a place where it is very difficult, nay impossible, to hide anything happening inside the church among very powerful people. And so this has shown that we will get at answers. The great takeaway for me is, is really more one uh, as a member of a religious order, and it's an appeal that I make to religious orders out there, um, including my own. It is really important for us to set the story straight immediately and to reveal all the known facts in a case and not to hide behind legalese, uh, not to hide behind legal prescriptions, but to say what happened, when it happened, as quickly as we can. And that's essential. What is what is really sad for me, Colleen, is that we've seen many of these women have published their stories on blogs, and their stories are being questioned. And it's clear from when you read these stories that you can't make up these details. We know very few survivors of abuse make up their stories. And these women have found unofficial vehicles to tell their stories because official vehicles have not been willing to listen to their stories or have appeared unwilling to listen to their stories. And it is only now, after all this media speculation around these cases, that the society has come forward and said, please, Anybody who believes that they have suffered abuse under Father Rupnik, please come forward. We are ready to listen. Mm-hmm. But these women have already spoken. <laughs> so we certainly haven't seen the end of this story. But Ricardo, I really appreciate your work uh, to, to dig up some of these facts, to compile this information from all these different sources, and and also just to to be honest about the role that the Jesuits need to play. I think also about the role that the, the DDF needs to play uh, in increasing transparency around issues like this, because, you know, it, it would, I think it would be easy for, for you as a Jesuit to, to defend this institution that you've given your life to. And so I, um, I, I appreciate you asking the hard questions here. It's enough, Colleen. I, you know, I'm as frustrated and as angry as every other Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, this this cannot go on. Mm-hmm. And the only way that we can stop it is if we end the silence. Right. All right. Ricardo, thanks so much for joining me this week. 
really good luck to you as uh, as you take over my spot as host of Inside the Vatican. And we'll be back in your uh, podcast feed next week with an update on the Pope's address to the Roman Curia, which is December 22nd, as well as the Pope's Christmas message. So, Tori- And Colleen, please yeah. send us photographs. I want to meet baby <laughs> Dolly, our first, our first inside the Vatican baby. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll keep. I'll keep y'all updated so that you can pass the updates on to the listeners if, if they care to hear. Wonderful, and a, a very happy Christmas and a wonderful new year with new life in your family. And I can't wait to have you back. Um, and hopefully, the listeners will bear me for a few weeks. All right. So, uh, a Merry Christmas to our listeners, and we will see you next week. Whether that'll be Ricardo or me, not sure. <laughs> Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Audio editing by Kevin Christopher Robles. Production assistance from Cristobal Spielman at America Media. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. To keep up with the latest Vatican coverage from America Magazine, follow us on Twitter at INSDE Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. And you can find all of our coverage at americamagazine.org. While you're there, please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America Magazine. It's easy to do, and it's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. For America Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you next time.